Hello there and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Geraghty. On today's episode, we're joined by New York Times best-selling author Jay Baer, who wrote the book, well, six to be exact, on customer experience and digital marketing. He's advised hundreds of companies from Caterpillar to Nike. In today's episode, we discuss customer engagement. Jay gives us a practical guide on what he calls talk triggers, how to use bold operational differentiators to create customer conversations. He takes us through the two types of complainers, offstage and onstage, and we talk about how 75,000 warm chocolate chip cookies have been doing the customer engagement work for one business for decades. Without further ado, let's head over to studio to Jay Bear. Jay, welcome. It's great to have you on the show. I am fired up to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> um, so in the intro just there a second ago, I was talking about all of your books and your webinars and your businesses and the whole shebang. Where do you find the time to do all of this? Well, the truth is I've got an amazing team at Convince and Convert and other folks I work with who who do most of the hard work. It looks like it's just me, but it's really them. I just take all the credit, which is my specialty. <laughs> and then also, I've been doing this for almost 30 years. And so, you know, I've done, I don't know, you think about webinars, 75 to 100 webinars a year for 10 years. You get pretty quick at it after a while. <laughs> so let's talk about customer engagement. Like, What does it mean to you? How do you define it? How do you look at it? Well, it seems to me that, that customer service is is what starts when the customer experience fails to satisfy. And I love the fact that that this show and this line of inquiry exists because it's always been true that it's better for the business to retain customers than have to always go out and get new customers, right? Like we all know that. Yeah. But for a long, long time, decades, most companies didn't really behave as if that were true. You think about how much time, money, and effort is dedicated in most organizations to net new customer acquisition. And it is dramatically, geometrically more than the time, money, effort dedicated to customer retention, customer satisfaction, and customer engagement. And that doesn't actually make any mathematical sense, but it's easier to measure new customers. It's easier to test new customer acquisition strategies, et cetera. And so I love that just sort of culturally in business, we're starting to spend more thinking time around, geez, maybe we should spend more effort making sure the customers we've already earned are happy. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, I, I think I'm not sure which one of your books you wrote this in, but I remember reading, you know, like if you sell something, you make a customer today, but if you help someone, you make a customer for life. Indeed. Absolutely. That was in uh, in my book, Utility. Thank you for uh, for mentioning that. And, I, you know, I wrote that book, geez, I don't know, eight or 10 years ago. And I think it's as true today, if not more so than it was then, especially right now, right? The, the world is is uh, not at its uh, apex, I think, from a ease of use perspective. And in a world where everything is a hassle, frankly, any sort of crumb that you can get from a business or organization that makes it somewhat easier to work with them, to get the answer you need, to buy the products you want, is something that customers will, will really treasure. One of the most interesting trends we've seen in the pandemic is that factors in purchase decisions that used to matter a lot, price, for example, now matter less. 
and factors that didn't matter as much, like customer experience, now matter much more. I would tell you that customer experience matters to customers in terms of who they buy from more today than it probably has in the history of the world. What are some of your favorite examples of good customer experience or engagement? You have some like fantastic examples across your books, but which ones are, are, you know, your favorites? I think part of it is understanding what customers expect and then meeting or exceeding that. Because the expectation equation is what I call it, is really the the key principle in in this whole line of, of thought. There really is no such thing as an inherently good or inherently bad customer experience. It's always dictated by the prism of your own anticipation. So for example, if you purchase something online and in the checkout page it says, you should expect this uh, to be at your home within four days. You're like, all right. And then it shows up in three days. You're like, that's amazing. What a great customer experience. (laughs) If it shows up in five days, you're disappointed and you chalk it up to a bad customer experience. Nothing has changed. Same product, same service, same price, same scenario. The only thing that's changed is whether it exceeded or failed to meet your own expectations. And so when you think about how do you exceed customer expectations, there's a few ways to do that 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 are most notable. First is speed, right? How can you be faster than customers expect? Mm-hmm. The second is clarity. How can you be less confusing? And third is empathy. How can you be more human? So if you can use technology, typically technology, or good staff training to exceed expectations in one of those dimensions, you'll be in good shape. So you think about one of them like speed, You may know the company Lemonade, which is a purpose-built online insurance company. Yeah. And if you have a claim, so something, your pipes burst in your house because it's cold. Instead of having to call your insurance agent who comes over and looks it around and then fills out some paperwork, and then maybe in three or four weeks, you get a check. Lemonade, you go to their website, you use a chatbot and say, yep, pipes burst. Then you upload a short video that describes what happened. They use a whole bunch of AI behind the scenes and anti-fraud algorithms, and they approve your claim in five seconds and then deposit the money in your account in five more seconds. The entire process is 10 seconds long. That is exceeding customer expectations in a way that would have been unfathomable just a short time ago. Wow. That's incredible. And I mean, mean, there's so many... You know, interesting examples. Uh, I love the one about the cookies in Double mm. Tree Hotel. They've just been giving out cookies for the last 30 years, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, you know, when it wasn't really intended initially to be this huge word of mouth success factor, it was like, well, let's just give people something because that would be nice to do. And then it sort of took on a life of its own. So all the, I think in all the hotels worldwide, uh, Double Tree by Hilton gives you a warm chocolate chip cookie when you check in. And it's important to note that this isn't just a cookie that's laying around, right? Or in a in a plastic wrapper. They actually have an oven in every hotel. Wow. When you check in, the front desk person turns, goes to the oven and pulls out a cookie, which is hot, right? It is it is warm. And so that's one of the key things to it is that it it gets all your senses. You've got smell, you've got taste, you've got touch because of the temperature, et cetera. And before the pandemic, I'm not sure what the numbers look like now, but before the pandemic, they were handing out 75,000 free chocolate chip cookies a day, a day. 
Now, oh, that, in my book, I'm Talk sal- Triggers, salivating at that. There's a lot of cookies, right? <laughs> there's a lot of cookies. So, in my book, Talk Triggers, we we uh, did a whole research project in cooperation with Hilton because we wanted to know what is the actual word of mouth impact of of this cookie. And it turns out about a third of their customers say that they have told somebody else a story specifically about that cookie. Now, you think about this, 75,000 cookies a day, a 33% pass-along rate, that's approximately 25,000 stories a day, every day. And as a result, Doubletree spends less on advertising than almost any hotel chain that's based in the U.S. because the cookie is the ad, and they successfully turn the guests into a volunteer sales and marketing department which is, of course, the best thing you can do in any company, right? The best way to grow any business is for your customers to grow it for you. I mean, that's just truth, right? But for that to happen, you've got to give them a story to tell. And nobody's going to say, wow, that that pillow was so comfortable, you won't believe it. Or wow, what soft (laughs) toilet paper in the room? Or wow, what a nice elevator. Like, that's not going to do it. It has to be something that they don't expect. And for Doubletree, the warm cookie is uh, is that device. And like you say, like nobody's going to want to talk about humdrum kind of experiences to their friends and family. So what advice would you give to companies trying to create that kind of point of difference, you know, about the talk triggers? What are they as well? Yeah, so you've got to understand that that competency doesn't create conversation. Competency is, of course, really important in business. It's what keeps your customers. It, It prevents defection and churn. But nobody talks about good, right? I've never said, hey, let me tell you about this uh, experience I had last night. It was perfectly adequate. Right? Nobody ever says that <laughs> because that's not a very good story. That's a terrible story, right? So you've got to have a story. And a story is almost always something that you don't expect. So it's not so much that it's marginally better. It's that you just didn't see it coming. So lots and lots and lots of hotels have a pile of apples maybe in a bowl on the front desk, or at least they did pre-pandemic. Nobody ever tells a story about apples. It's a waste of good citrus because they don't, <laughs> quite, they don't quite take it to the appropriate place, right? It's not, it's not hot. They don't hand it to you. It's not an experience, right? So it has to be experiential to turn it uh, into a story, but it can be something really simple. So there was a, an accounting firm in Indianapolis, not too far from where I live, called Bognadoff and Dodges. And they are, by all accounts, unremarkable. It's a small accounting firm, two principals, Paul and, and Tim. They've got an associate and a front desk person, like four people there. And they do personal tax returns, small business returns. They charge the same as pretty much every accounting firm. There's nothing special about them except for this. They respond to every client phone call and every client email within five minutes. Wow. Five-minute response time from an accounting firm. Now, (laughs) you don't expect that from an accounting firm. And if you look them up online, two interesting facts. One, they've got like 75 Google reviews for an accounting firm, which is in and of itself amazing because I've had a lot of accountants in my life and I've never been compelled to leave a review. (laughs) And second, if you look at their reviews, almost all of them mention how fast they are. They have turned something that you don't typically associate with professional services firms into their greatest competitive advantage, because this is the kind of story that we'd be out having dinner and I would say, man, you won't believe what happened. I called my accountant. He got back to me in like two seconds. I never see that, right? So you, you want to make it 
a proactive story that your customers want to tell. And in order for that to happen, it's got to be something that they do not expect. That's such a great example because, you know, I can't remember the last time I like spoke to like a friend or family about, you know, my uh, accountant. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're not going to look at your tax return and be like, wow, <laughs> all the numbers added up. <laughs> like that's what it's supposed to, That's what they do. Right. <laughs> and so like, how do you measure, you know, if, if your talk trigger is still creating conversation, yep. you know, down the line? Yep. So a talk trigger is defined this way as an operational choice that is designed to create conversations. So operational choice, give everybody a, a warm chocolate chip cookie that we bake on site. Answer all calls and emails within five minutes. Handle insurance claims within five seconds, et cetera. There's a few different ways to do it. Uh, you can be faster than they expect. You can be kinder than they expect. You can be more useful than they expect. You can be more generous than your customers expect, which is the example for, for the free cookies, et cetera. The way to measure it, ideally, is to extend the talk trigger to your customers and then, number one, check to see if they have mentioned it, right? So do you, do you see it in social media? Do you mm -hmm. see it in your reviews, right? So this is observed talkability. Then the second thing you want to do is, is measured talkability, where typically what you would want to handle is send them a survey of some kind. And usually you can append this to your existing customer satisfaction research. So let's mm -hmm. say you go to uh, Doubletree and you get your cookie. Three days later, you might get a survey from, from Hilton that says, hey, uh, how was your experience at Doubletree? Maybe a net promoter score type survey, zero to nine, would you recommend us to a friend? Great. Then you ask a second question, which is, since you stayed with us, have you told anybody a story about this hotel? Right. Yes, then, then you ask one more question, which is, what did you talk about? And you give them a list of attributes, comfy bed, nice elevator, heated pool, good food in the restaurant, warm chocolate chip cookie. So you put the talk trigger in the list of options right. and you check to see how many customers check that box in the survey. And that gives you a sense of sort of aided awareness of the talk trigger. So that's typically how we measure it. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with Intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. 
That's all to come on Off Script. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. Talking about like one of your other books, Hug Your Haters, a statistic, a startling statistic really, was about how 80% of companies say they deliver outstanding customer service, but only 8% of their customers agree with them. And Jay, that is a chasm of difference in opinion. How does How can that happen? Uh, that research was from Bain initially, and that was a few years ago. It was uh, not long ago reproduced and similar results. And now wow. I think it's like 84% of companies say they deliver superior service and 11% of customers agree or something like that. It's it's essentially the same, unchanged. And, and I'll tell you, an even scarier statistic. Today, the American Customer Service Index, uh, which is a, a roll-up statistic that measures customer satisfaction across all industries and all business types is the lowest it's ever been in history. (laughs) Meaning that customers believe that customer service is worse today than it has ever been in history. So despite all the time and effort and money we've spent on improving customer service, customer engagement, customer experience, we have made seemingly zero progress uh, whatsoever, which is a problem. (laughs) Here's the deal. Inside companies, there's a couple problems. One, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Nobody wants to admit that they're poor because what does that say about you as a manager, right? So Mm. psychologically, you are incentivized to believe things are better than they actually are. That's just human nature. But also, so many organizations tend to use stories as data. Remember this one time when this one customer was super happy because we did this one thing? And that becomes the legend inside the organization. And that legend, because it's a story, takes on disproportionate power and becomes sort of the filter through which the organization looks at all of their customer satisfaction initiatives. Whereas when you look at the actual data, you're like, well, yeah, we treated somebody really well one time, but on the whole, we treat them not very well at all. Now, I don't want to be too negative about companies because it is incredibly difficult to be good at this. Not because it's mechanically hard or expensive, although that's part of it. It's that customer expectations don't stand still. Like I've been doing this, uh, you know, for a long, long time. And I've never in my entire life had a customer say to me in a research scenario, you know, I've been thinking about it and it'd be fine if they just did this more slowly. (laughs) (laughs) So what was what was fast three years ago would be slow today. And the same is true with a lot of other dimensions of customer experience and customer engagement. So it's a challenge for businesses because even if you're better than you used to be, you may not be getting better as fast as customer experience expectations are escalating. And so you, you're always playing catch up and, and it's, a, it's a tough situation to be in. And so I, I suppose on the flip side, in terms of customers and I suppose complainers, the haters, as you kind of describe them, but you have kind of two types of complainers in the book and mm-hmm. I, I suppose each yep. with very different motivation behind them. Yes. Yeah, we did a lot of research on this topic. And what we found is is that there are two big groups of people who complain about businesses and we call them on stage and offstage haters. The onstage people typically want to complain in public, which in the modern age is reviews, social media, discussion boards and forums, et cetera. And they not only want some measure of satisfaction from the brand, 
they also want an audience. So they, they like to interact with other customers who say, yeah, they are a terrible company, right? They, they sort of have their, their pitchfork and their torch and they, and they want to kind of have a call to arms, if you will. The offstage haters are, are people who typically complain in private. So that would be email, chatbots, et cetera, phone, and so forth. And, and they don't necessarily want it to be this whole public conversation. They just want to get their problem solved. And what we found is that certainly younger people tend to be a little bit more comfortable with, with the onstage complaining in social and avenues like that. But it's not necessarily a demographic split. At some level, it's just mm. who you are as a person and also what your issue is, right? So you think about everybody in, in their head when they have to complain about something plays a little mental calculus, which is, all right, I have a problem that I need to get solved. What is the best way to get this problem solved most quickly? Is it chatbot? Is it phone? Is it email? Is it Twitter DM? Is it something else, right? We all do that calculation in our head in real time. And then we pick the channel that we are personally comfortable with and which we think will produce the best results. Mm. What's interesting is even since I wrote that book, Hug Your Haters, the expectations by channel have changed a lot. And in a lot of organizations, what they're trying to do, and rightfully so, is have the same kind of response time and the same kind of response pattern, regardless of, of where the customer chooses to interact with the business, right? So your response time in chat is the same as email, is the same as social, is the same as phone. And that makes a lot of sense from the business perspective, because if you're way faster in chatbot than you are anywhere else, what are you doing? You're training your customers to use that particular tool that may or may not be desirable for the company. So having that kind of consistent service level agreement, that consistent pattern of care is a best practice. But it's hard to do when each of those are very distinct and different technologies that have different staffing patterns, et cetera. So it's getting harder for businesses, not easier over time. And I, I suppose you can't afford to ignore any of them, to, no matter which platform they're kind of contacting. No, that's the worst thing you can do. And we actually tested that extensively. The worst thing you can do is not answer. And, and that sounds self-evident, like, of course, but it is shocking, shocking how many customer complaints are never answered. And, and that's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you. It's probably happened to everybody. And I'll ask you a simple question. If you had a problem with a company, and you chose to raise that complaint in some form or fashion, and you didn't hear anything back, did that make you feel better about that organization? I think probably not. Not likely. <laughs> not likely. My friend Shep Hyken, who does a lot of work in this category as well, has a great quote that I'll appropriate here. A customer that you ignore is a customer you should be prepared to lose. Yes. And, big, and he's exactly big, right. Big Hyken right? fans here. Yeah. So Shep, Shep nails it with, with that quote that if you – and you don't have to solve the problem. Mm. You just have to acknowledge that they asked. That's the key. And we actually tested that in the book, right? That obviously it's better if you can fix the problem, but you don't have to. You just have to say, yeah, we heard you. We're sorry. That sucks. And, and typically that will actually have an impact on, uh, on, on their customer loyalty. And you mentioned earlier on a bit about one of your earlier books, Utility, Why Smart mm -hmm. Marketing is About Help, Not Hype. And I, I think it's probably helped so many people with the utility framework. But I, I suppose for people who haven't heard it before, I'd love to hear that framework kind of explained. Yeah, the idea of, of utility is 
is that if you continue to create value for your customers and prospects, even if it's not about your products and services per se, eventually a portion of those customers will reward you with their attention, with their loyalty, with their trust, and and with their money. I'll give a good example of, of sort of utility and practice. There is a a real estate agent in Florida. His name's Jay Manusa. And he's an interesting realtor because he only represents sellers. If you want to buy a house, he doesn't do that, which is a little unusual, only sellers. Hmm. And he only represents sellers who have homes, you know, in maybe the half a million dollar range, which is not a super expensive home for Florida. And what's true if you have a home in that particular price point it's, it's often the case that you don't have a lot of upside equity in that home. And so you want to be careful about how much money you're going to pay out in commissions. Consequently, a lot of customers in that category will think, you know, yes, I could use a, a listings agent to sell this home, but I have to pay the agent 6% of the purchase price as commission. So maybe I could try to sell it myself. And if I can sell it myself, I keep all the money. Well, right. what 99.99% of, of real estate agents would do would be to convince those people that, no, look, you, yeah, maybe you could sell it yourself, but you're not a professional. You don't know anything about this. You don't know the market. You don't know the paperwork. You don't know what to look for. That's too risky. Do not try this yourself. Well, Mr. Manusa goes the exact opposite. He sat down and wrote a 63-page <laughs> downloadable PDF, merchandise huh. all over his website. It's called... How to Sell a Home on Your Own in Florida. And it is literally step-by-step <laughs> step exactly what to do, who to call, paperwork to fill out, the appropriate sequence. And, and I interviewed him for a book I wrote called Utility for Real Estate, which is just these same principles only for real estate. Now, I don't understand this, man. It seems to me like you're giving people exactly what they need to not hire you. Right. Jay, I understand why you think that. <laughs> but what you also don't understand is that people get to about page 13 and they say, holy cow, is it hard to sell a home? I want <laughs> nothing to do with that. It's literally his number one source of new customers. Wow. That, I mean, that makes so much sense because, you know, you, you often find when, you know, something's broken, the house, a piece of plumbing or something, you're like, you know, I'm going to fix this myself. And you look it up on YouTube, I'm going to see a how-to, but, you know, half an hour later and there's like water flying out of the pipe. <laughs> you're like, oh, maybe I should just call the person who's making this video. Yeah, you made it worse. You just doubled the price. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that's me. I'm not not really a DIY guy. I've got a, I've got a great list of phone numbers. That is my... Uh, that is my handyman skills. <laughs> Me too. Wow, that's that's incredible. So I, I suppose something you mentioned earlier on, just about COVID and and the situation we're in. But I, I suppose mm -hmm. it's it's almost two years since the pandemic began, and you know, in that time, there's obviously been a huge shift in customer expectations. And even though I suppose hopefully we're progressing nearer to normality, like how should we kind of be evolving to meet this? kind of new customer needs? And, and, and do you yeah. think it will still remain the same? I don't know if it'll remain the same, but there's a couple pieces of advice I have. First is the businesses that will win over the next 24 months are the businesses that understand their customers the best. And I mean, understand their customers of today, 
the best. If you've got customer attitude research or, or customer personas or any kind of information that tells you what your customers think, feel, and desire, if that research is 18 months old or older, you don't actually have any research. Because customer attitudes and desires have changed that much that quickly, you've got to really lean into customer understanding right now, this year. Second thing is, even though we're in an era of massive digital transformation and a lot of move toward automation for obvious efficiency gains, we have to understand that efficiency must be balanced with empathy. Right. Everything is hard. And yet we're in an era of empathy deficit. Look, I'm a seventh generation entrepreneur. My family's been self-employed since the mid-1850s. My son's an eighth generation entrepreneur. And, And the number of times I had a conversation in my life with my dad or my grandfather about treating customers with respect and dignity and kindness and humanity Literally zero times, never, not once, because that was the default state. That's, we just Mm. call it business. Yeah. But now, uh, somewhere along the way, we kind of lost our way. Partially it's cultural. We're not as kind to one another as we used to be. And some of it is, is driven by uh, technology and efficiency and automation. And that kind of makes me a little sad, but I will tell you that today, if you treat customers with a little bit of extra kindness and humanity, It is massively powerful because it stands out. They don't expect it of you anymore. So you've got to find a way to do both, to be efficient, but but also to be human. I'll I'll tell you a quick story about that Mm. and how important it is. Before the pandemic, I was going to Australia to do some speaking. And my wife uh, got to come with me that time, which was a lot of fun. And we were in Los Angeles getting ready to make the connection to, to make the long flight over. And we're getting on the plane. And the gate agent scans my boarding pass beep, and looks in that little black box they have. I don't know what's in that box, but I think it's, <laughs> uh, I think it's you know, your frequent flyer status and your seat number and whatever. Because she peers in there and picks her head up. Mr. Bear, uh, thank you very much for your loyalty here on Delta. We appreciate your diamond medallion status. Hope you have a fantastic flight. And that was really nice to hear. But I flew so much in those days that I'd heard it before. So I didn't really pay much attention. Then she scans my wife's boarding pass, beep, peers into that black magic box and discovers, I presume, that my wife has very few frequent flyer miles at all. Oh, oh, Mrs. Bear. (laughs) Mrs. Bear, I'd like to thank you for what you must be doing at home to allow Mr. Bear to spend so much time with us here on Delta. So ma'am, in particular, I want to wish you a spectacular voyage. Wow. And we went down that jetway in tears. I kid you not. Because not only did she totally nail our relationship dynamic and how important my wife is to allow me to do what I do, but she did it in the moment and, and acknowledged her role. And, and that's not about technology. That's about allowing your team to read the room, right? The, the definition of empathy is not the customer's always right. The definition of empathy, I think, is really illustrative. It is this, to understand and share the feelings of another person. And that's the piece that we can't lose sight of. That's fantastic. And I suppose there's nothing better we could finish up on today, I think, than than hearing that message and and that story. But just before we wrap up, what's next for you? You know, do you have any plans or projects for uh, 2022? Always plans, always projects, working on a, <laughs> a new research uh, project and probably a new book around speed. 
the notion that you don't have to be the bestest if you're always the fastest. So I'll tell you more about that when we get a little closer. What I'm spending a lot of time on right now in preparation for that is my newsletter. It's called The Bear Facts. It comes out every two weeks. Each issue uh, has a customer experience or marketing story, recommended books, recommended podcasts, recommended tequila, because I'm a tequila sommelier (laughs) as well. If you go to thebearfacts.com, you can uh, sign up. Brilliant. That's excellent. Jay, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. What What a fun time. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jay Bear. If you did, why not help spread the word and give the episode a shout out on social tag at intercom. We'd love to hear from you. I'll be back next week with another great episode of Inside Intercom. This is Inside Intercom.